Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. I'm Colette Bennett, Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know by now, we have three different types of podcasts. Our seminar series is a look back at some of our conference and seminar presentations where you can hear from people like Anne Pettifor, Joe Larragie and Tony Fahey. Our 10-minute lesson series where, where we give a brief overview of a policy topic and this is meant to be a useful introduction to an area that we hope our listeners will find useful. And then our interview series where we have a chat with experts on a range of policy areas. This is one of those. Today I'm joined by Tanya Ward, CEO of the Children's Rights Alliance, to talk about children's rights, particularly in this time of COVID. I hope you enjoy it. Tanya, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Uh, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing okay, yeah, I'm surviving. I'm probably in a better position than I was this month than last month, like everyone else. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling a bit more positive about the future this month. Feeling a bit more optimistic, absolutely. Um, so just, I suppose, to, to tell our listeners a little bit about Children's Rights Alliance, like, you know, why was it established in the mid 90s? What, what is it about? What do you do? Yeah. So Children's Rights Alliance is 20, 25 years old and it's an umbrella organisation. It has over 100 uh, member organisations. And the goal is to make Ireland one of the best places in the world to be a child. And the reason it was founded was uh, many organisations uh, came together after the UN signed the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. And that was a really exciting moment in human rights because the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child really takes account of this extraordinary change that happens in children's life, you know, from infancy to the age of 18 years, the tremendous level of growth and development that takes place. But it also takes account of, you know, the very particular situations that they find themselves in. So, uh, for example, if a child uh, uh, is in the youth justice system, it has particular rules around trying to ensure sure that they don't end up in detention really it's a measure of last resort they get special treatment in in the justice system and it also has guarantees like that the voice of the child uh, should be central to decision making and that the best interest of the child should be central to decision making and that children shouldn't be discriminated against including on the basis of their parentage so it gives us a, a roadmap on how to respond to the needs and, and rights of children. Um, and that's why the organisations that founded the Children's Rights Alliance 25 years ago uh, brought it together. And I suppose what you've seen over that 25 years is that those organisations have worked together to try and deliver really important incremental changes for children over time. Um, a big focus in the early years would have been on child poverty um, and particularly around child protection because you'll, you'll remember that our child protection system for many years was broken. Um, we had well over 20 official reports documenting how we failed vulnerable children um, and often what you found was institutions or organisations when something happened to children, they didn't put them first. They didn't put their safety and their welfare first. Uh, and so that's why the, the Children's Rights Alliance would have campaigned, for example, legislation like the Children First legislation, which every organisation now that works with children has to implement, has to make sure their staff are trained in child protection. Um, and they have to make sure that if, if something happens to a child, the guardian are contacted, toothless contacted, etc. Another big campaign area for the Children's Rights Alliance was the children's referendum in 2012 and that's because I suppose there was a focus on the constitution because the basic law of the land and there's a feeling that well if we got children into the constitution we could start affecting this national change that children 
wouldn't be invisible anymore. Uh, that children's interests should be, you know, part of the national public discourse, and our country should be, you know, set up in such a way that we respond. I mean, children make up a quarter of the population, and so there are certain guarantees secured in, in the referendum. There's no doubt it doesn't go far enough, <laughs> you know, uh, but at least there's a statement that children have rights um, in the constitution, and it will take time for for that amendment to be interpreted over time by the courts to deliver you know, those rights, what those rights might, might look like. Um, but, you know, I would say there's such a change from when the Children's Rights Alliance was formed to now. When the Children's Rights Alliance was formed, the first report had come out, the Kelly Fitzgerald report had come out, and that was the first sense that actually maybe children aren't safe in their homes. Uh, Kelly Fitzgerald had been murdered uh, by her by her family, and when it was looked into, it was, it was identified, there were lots of situations where the social services should have intervened and to save her, and, and they didn't. Um, but the difference today, and this huge problem still for children, but the difference today is, you know, we have a Minister for Children. He has a big brief at the moment, but we still have a Minister for Children. Um, we have a Child and Family Agency, uh, we have a national strategy for children and young people, better outcomes, better futures. Um, we have a national youth parliament. You know, we have a lot of different things. But saying all of that, we still have a lot of social problems for children and young people as well. So we have a long way to go before we can assure that that UN Convention on the Rights of the Child has a meaningful change for children throughout the country. Yeah, and you, you talk about the fact that the Children's Rights Alliance and it's, you know, it's it's a member organisation. It's a collective of a lot of groups that are, are actively involved with with children's rights and, and advocacy work. Um, and that's been in place now for 25 years. Um, and there has been all of those improvements. There has been all of those kind of legislative changes, regulatory changes, systems put in place. However, a couple of years ago, we had the No Child 2020 campaign, a really successful yeah. campaign, a, a yeah. really, really incredible campaign. Yeah. Why was that necessary after so long if we've seen all of these improvements? Yeah. So I think one of the big, I think, gaps in Ireland has been, I suppose, focus on poverty. Uh, so, you know, you have change, obviously, in child protection legislation, a new child and family agency, etc., but what, but at the same time, children were experiencing huge levels of poverty. And I think what happened was the sector was very focused on the child protection reform because the kinds of abuses children were experiencing were of the, of the higher scale because we had a broken child protection system. And I think when you got all of those, you got the house in order and they're all starting to bed down. There was a focus then as, okay, the stats are terrible, particularly since the recession. Uh, the fact that over a hundred thousand children are going potentially going to bed hungry several times a week. The fact that a lot of these children are living in very stressful households uh, where their parents are making these terrible decisions every day. Do I pay the rent bill? Do I pay the electricity bill? What, you know, do I, how do we put food on the table? And we know what they do is they scrimp on what they put on the table or they just don't feed themselves. You know, these terrible decisions. And, and we were hearing from children, young people and their members um, about the impact that was having on children on, on an everyday basis. So uh, children are so aware when their families are living through poverty. Um, and what they start doing is they start excluding themselves actually from normal activity. So they hear there's a birthday party, they're too embarrassed to go if they can't afford a birthday present or they just don't want to ask their parent for a fiver uh, because the parent wants to do it, will do everything they can, uh, but they don't ask the parent uh, for it. So they start saying, I'm not available, I can't go. 
and that goes on up into their teenage years. Um, but the other thing is that, you know, they need a book for school or they need new shoes. They start hiding that as well. And I think what's one of the things in Ireland when people are living in poverty is there's, unfortunately, there's a terrible shame attached to it. It's like you failed as a parent and there's not that recognition. Actually, the problem is, is, the, is the country we live in and the systems we live in, like they disable parents and their ability to provide for their children. Um, and that's the bit I think we need to focus on. Um, uh, you know, so the No Child 2020 campaign came about um, from an interaction we had with Fintan O'Toole. He had met with us to talk about child poverty issues and he met a number of the members together with us in the Alliance. And he said, look, I'd love to do something on child poverty, really put a focus on the impact that it's having on children and maybe link it to a campaign. You know, the Irish Times, we could focus on the content, get the stories out there and then would pave the way for you to advocate and deliver some key asks for, for children and young people. And when the campaign ran last year, uh, it ran in, uh, uh, sorry, in 2019. And the, the Fintan, when it came down, Fintan approached us in October 2018. He said, OK, January, we can run this campaign. We're like, OK, January. No <laughs> <laughs> Usually we spend years planning. <laughs> so we said, look, let's do it. Once in a lifetime opportunity, the Irish Times the national paper of record was actually going to invest this huge amount of time uh, and, and to generate content about child poverty in Ireland. So it was a really fantastic opportunity. And it was linked to the 100th anniversary of the doll. Uh, and what was interesting was there was a declaration that was published at that time and it made a number of promises to children. Um, and when we looked at them, it was pretty clear that those promises were still relevant, you know, today as they were a hundred years ago, you know, um, that children would have adequate housing, children wouldn't go hungry, children would, would be clothed. All of those basic things we know that children need, unfortunately, were still really relevant to us. So the Irish Times then over that year, the big launch, um, they commissioned lots of stories and uh, they, you know, they, and they got it so right. And the, one of the stories that they um, commissioned was they sent Kitty Holland to Finland. So they were saying, you know, which country gets this? Right? And I was like, well, and Finland is a good country to pick because the population is pretty similar to our own, right? So you can go with Norway and Sweden, they're much richer countries. Let's go, go with Finland. And she took two lone parents in both countries to show what the difference in their lives was. And what you saw uh, for the family, for the lone parent in Finland versus our lone parent here, and she was she was a nurse I mean, she was a you know, professional woman um but she was actually having to survive by going to food banks uh and that should not be the case no one like food banks should only be for people who can't manage an income uh, and are in a difficult situation in their life they shouldn't be living on a food bank to to survive um but the, the lone parents in in uh, Finland, you know, her childcare costs were completely subsidised. Her housing costs were low. She didn't have debt uh, that she was dealing with. You know, her GP costs were, you know, all of these different things that make your life easier as a parent, she didn't have to deal with. And that was the big difference um, in, in their lives. And a lot of that coverage throughout the year, it really paved the way to influence, I think, our politicians and the Dáil and the Oireachtas members to think about child poverty in a different way. And it just was an opportunity to get everyone to think about child poverty. Because the other thing I think that had came up throughout the year was people would say, what about family poverty? Well, actually, child poverty, in fact, they are actually inextricably linked. Um, and I would be advocating for, let's say, childcare for lone parents and other families on low income, because I know it's actually the data tells us it's one of the best child poverty measures uh, that if you have 
good quality childcare that's completely affordable and isn't breaking the bank, it makes a massive difference to their lives. So what we did alongside it, we ran a campaign, we focused on the budget that year and we came up with five asks. Um, and, and what we were able to do was convince the government to uh, uh, fund and develop um, a hot school meals programme. So all the countries that do well in child poverty in other countries, they have a hot school meals programme. That's part of the, the, the day. Uh, and we don't have that in Ireland. And it's also a way of getting healthy food to children as well and really helping time poor parents. Um, we, uh, we, we campaign for free school books. So again, normal part of most countries, there's no stress about, about buying the free school books, about buying the school books, they're free and the state actually produces them. So north of the border, parents aren't stressing over the school books. Um, another ask was uh, extending uh, med uh, the medical card and increasing the threshold of people who could benefit from it. We also had a focus on culture because one of the there was a big report that had come out from the ESRI uh, and and the Arts Council and was really looking at for children with low incomes they're really struggling and suffering not getting to participate in cultural activities and we knew that how important that is for children uh, like I remember myself I, mean, I would come from a working class background and I remember my school bringing me to see cats in the point. And, you know, it's like, it's just amazing because it just it changes your horizons and it makes you feel like something else is possible. Uh, and that's the bit that a lot of children are, are missing out on. Uh, and so we got a great dialogue going, I think, around the connection between poverty and, and culture as well. People said, why didn't we go for sports? Because obviously sports is fundamental to your well-being. But because there's so much money going into sports uh, and the country you know really accepts how central and important sports are to children that's why we didn't go for that we felt giving a push around culture um would actually help in in the space as well so what it delivered then uh was the hot school meals but in addition to that we got a, a pilot for one million invested in the school books pilot which was really fantastic and it actually delivered lots of other things in the child poverty space so Catherine's poem was able to extend the national child care scheme so more families could get more hours through that scheme and it was particularly affecting lone parents they weren't getting enough support from it um, we also got increases in the welfare payments for children as well um, and so it kind of had this kind of domino effect you know the overarching budget had a domino effect and it also meant Pascal who also talked about the importance of child poverty as well in this debate. So that's really important because it's just elevating it uh, for that period of time. Now, like it's a constant job to keep it up and you know to keep it up there but it really made an enormous difference I think to the national debate and dialogue on child poverty. Um, but to be honest we've we still have a lot more work to do. I'm hoping this year, particularly under there's a new national uh, children's strategy that's going to be developed. Uh, I'm hoping from that there'll be a drop down child poverty uh, plan. That's what I'm hoping comes from it. Uh, and, you know, it's a job that needs to be finished off. But to be honest, I've met so many people in government who seem to be sold on it. Um, and I do think we've got good champions in our politicians. Like we were lucky with No Child 20. Uh, there was you know, Regina Doherty was, was a big supporter, as was Catherine Sapone. And there were other, you know, there were other members, the Labour Party, Social Democrats, like Sinn Féin, they all were really supportive, actually, of the campaign. So I think we need to work together collectively as a sector to keep delivering from children and young people, because the truth is, 
ending child poverty, that's, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of work left. There's years in it left for us. Uh, and I think it's absolutely possible. I think it's uh, it, it's not inevitable. Um, when you see someone like Tony Blair coming in and saying, I'm going to end child poverty in 10 years, he didn't end it, but he certainly dented the, 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 the figures in that period. So it just shows you that it is possible to turn the dial on it. Yeah, and you mentioned the fact, and it's it's one of those those words that kind of gets bandied about a bit, but it's it is that intersectionality of child poverty. Like it's it affects everything, and everything affects it. So you know, family poverty, where you live, um, you know, your your parents' education, your own kind of childcare, your own experiences, you know, your friends, all of that, you know, your housing situation, your healthcare situation. It's all interconnected so there's a huge amount of work that affects child like child well-being you know but yeah. broader than child poverty um yeah. that there's so much work that needs to be done as well and yeah. you know I was I, I'm kind of struck by that thing of well you know it's when people when, when children so young start to to kind of isolate themselves or self-exclude from yeah. things like you know birthday parties because they know mommy and daddy doesn't don't have it or, you know, and that, that continues up into, as you say, teenage and beyond. And that has such an impact then into adulthood and creates this kind of cycle then where, you know, if you feel ashamed, your children will pick up on that yeah. and, and on and on it goes. So it's, yeah. it's, it's just so important that there is that kind of bigger picture approach taken to it and that there is yeah. that kind of cross governmental kind of approach taken um, to it. And it's, you know, it was interesting, the, the No Child 2020, um, the, the, the campaign, yeah. um, that was so successful. And it was in 2019. And then we get hit with a pandemic. Yeah. Now, I know um, that, you know, obviously school closures have had a, a major impact and particularly for, for children with additional needs children in disadvantaged areas, children for whom, you know, digital literacy is an issue or, or accessibility of, of hardware uh, to engage online is an issue. Um, but like, uh, apart from all of that, you know, the very specific things, and we can talk about the very kind of pandemic specific issues, it almost feels like it's, it's brought us back much further than just beyond the 2019 campaign it's brought us yeah. much further behind yeah that's right i mean like you will know what we're hearing from the member organizations about low-income families now there's far more of them right uh, so many have lost their jobs uh, they've run out of their savings so all their resources are gone they've nothing left they've nothing left now um uh, one of the the positive things, bizarrely, that's come through is the reduction in child homelessness during because there's been a moratorium on evictions, um, there were restrictions on rent increases, and of course the tourists are gone. So suddenly all this housing has come onto the private rental market. I think it's the same level it was 2011. So that's the one only positive thing that's coming through. But the other piece we were hearing last year was food poverty. So like, I went to a meeting of domestic violence organisations to t talk about domestic violence during COVID. And actually, the thing they were all saying, food poverty, people were really struggling to get food on the table uh, and the incomes just weren't sufficient. And particularly because children were at home, they weren't getting the hot school meal in, in school. Um, we, we ran a programme 
with the support of the Community Foundation and the Oakfield Trust, um, the One Foundation. Uh, and basically what we did with that was we actually got out, um, we, we we got meals to about 2,000 children uh, through that programme. I was trying two community settings, particularly through rural Ireland. But to be honest, what really should have happened was the state should have had some system to coordinate over, you know, an overarching response if this had come up as, a, as an issue. Uh, and there's no doubt, you know, I think this is a possibility into the future that they might do it. But if they had done it, they would have just a better way of responding to people's needs. But the bit I suppose I'm really worried about is is the impact on their education uh, because the levels of dropout uh, the levels of falling behind, and you've mentioned issues around, around literacy, uh, and there's, I'm hearing severe disengagement with some communities from the education system. So you're talking about creating a generation of children that will lose, leave school early. They won't have qualifications. They won't get a good job. They won't get quality employment that can pay for good quality housing and all the things that matter in their life. They'll have shorter lives as a result. Their children will, if they get, if they get to have children, their children will experience uh, this this life cycle of poverty, um, and that's what's ahead of us now. Uh, and that's not even talking about mental health and the emotional impact that COVID has had. Um, the underlying thing everyone is concerned about is as well as this is a very low point from a child protection point of view, because um, the child care law reporting project, it documents cases in the child care courts and the child care courts is dealing with situations where children are taken into care and uh, or there's some, there's some issue there. They saw in eight years of documenting these cases, the worst cases of child neglect in the last lockdown last year. And that was what everyone was worried about. They, you know, there was a complete fall off in referrals to two so the child and family agency. Um, and the big issue they were concerned about was child neglect, what was happening for those children. And we know big upsurge in domestic violence cases as well. And again, the lockdown, like, I mean, I, the, the thing that really kept me awake at night um, when the schools didn't go back and the, what we were disappointed with was the early years got open for vulnerable children and children with disabilities, etc., um, and children in poverty. And we saw this very wide definition um, of poverty, which was, which was great. But uh, in contrast to the UK, Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales, we didn't get our schools open for vulnerable children and disadvantaged children and that really disappointed me um, because I was hearing from school principals and uh, from teachers talking about their children and how worried they were. Um, one teacher uh, talked to me before about how Christmas is a bad period for their very vulnerable kids anyway because there's a lot of drink, drink taken, there's late nights, they don't get fed properly <clears throat> and they often arrive back in January really stressed, right? they're really stressed because of what they've just gone through over the Christmas period. Now a situation where they still haven't gone back. <laughs> it's months of it. And I just, you know, what situation these children are in, I just don't know. Nobody seems to know, to be honest. And everyone is worried about it. So we're not in a good place, to be honest. We're in a very low place. And everyone I talk to in our sector is, is, is feeling the same way. However, Isn't it a fact that a lot of, if not the majority of, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on that one, um referrals to TUSLA in relation to child protection issues come from teachers they come from yeah. schools yeah because they're seeing it they, they're coming yeah. in the classrooms every day yeah. I mean these are you know they're they're professional 
empathetic yeah. people they they know what's going on even yeah. if they don't explicitly know they can yeah. see a child who isn't sleeping isn't eating properly that's it you know isn't being washed isn't being cared for isn't being yeah. you know you can tell the difference in a, a child yeah. who has all of that and who doesn't they're the most essential partner in the education system alongside the youth sector. You know, those organisations, the early years providers, they are these essential, they're essential parts of the child protection system because TUSA and shouldn't, shouldn't be in everyone's home every day. And it's not, it's not, wouldn't be appropriate or right that they would be. Uh, but the teachers, the early years educators, the youth workers, as you say, they see the change in the child. They can see something has happened. They can see they're socially withdrawn. They can see they've start, they're starting to arrive in dirty clothes. Uh, they can see they're not arriving at all. So all of these things, they are the best indicator that something has happened. And, you know, even in, the, in terms of Tucson, I would say they are the ones where they end up taking the most action along, you know, alongside um, family members. So often grandparents and other family members would make a lot of, a lot of referrals. Um, they, 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 the, the teachers are, are fundamental. And I suppose that's one of the reasons why the department launched its campaign around children's services to really remind everyone that those services all still exist. They're operating. They'll still do their work. Their staff will come to work every day. The fact that COVID has happened has not changed anything. They're essential and they're there. And it's trying to remind people that if they come across a child they're worried about, is to pick up the phone and make the phone call. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Um, and last time around, they ran this campaign last year and it did lead to extra referrals then coming through. It kind of reminded people, don't, if a child is disengaged with you, you know, and make a phone phone us. Don't don't take the risk. Uh, let us know, and we'll see if there's something we can do to help that child out. Uh, so yeah, so we're look, we're in a low place, but I would say, uh, you know, the uh, these outcomes are not inevitable. Um, we what we do need is a national recovery now for children and young people. Uh, we need massive investments in their educational futures. We need to come up with lots of alternatives for when the mainstream system fails fails them. Uh, we need to be thinking about um, you know alternatives to leaving search anyway. Like like why that exam has not been reformed. I mean it it like I, I I've met so many young people. And I'm 45, I met so many young people, and they're telling me the same, you know, in, in these different meetings, you know, as children's rights lines, and young people come in to meet you and talk about their issues. And I was talking about the same, leaving search and the same experience I had. I'm thinking, how is this still the case? Like, this is just bananas that we're still putting people through this. And you need milestones and you need, these are really important things, but the leaving search, the way we've constructed it, it's not helping young people get to where they, they, they need to go. So I, I think we need to start talking about children's futures and start thinking about the big ideas, not accept the kind of outcomes uh, that everyone knows is, 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 is that we're due for. They're not inevitable. Um, and that that's where we need to go next. You know, there's conversations about the hairdressers, the, the pubs, all that kind of stuff. We need the conversation. I know we're all suffering from it, but we need the conversation to start about children and young people and about getting their future back on track. And I mean, you know, if anything, if there there could have been any any light out of this in relation to children, um, in, in terms of all of this pandemic, you know, we saw what happened last year with calculated grades. There could have been a, a plan put in place. No one could have thought this is definitely come the stroke of midnight on 2020. We're done. You know, there was always going to be the need for at least a contingency 
for this year's leaving cert because not alone will they have potentially missed months of school you know for this term they lost a load of school when they were in fifth year so they've got they've got a significant gap in terms of their their education in terms of their learning and if it's possible to learn within their environment at all so it would have been an ideal opportunity for the department and for others to actually take a step back and reevaluate the the whole kind of system of it um, instead of kind of pushing forward and hoping for the best. What can I ask though, speaking of the, the paper of record as you, you called it yourself, um, Jen O'Connell last year had uh, a piece where she had advocated for the earlier opening of schools. And I know that she got kind of a, a lot of very harsh feedback because of it, because you know there were a lot of, of people coming out and saying, and in fairness, you can you can half understand it. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm I know where I stand on it. Um, but you know, a lot of people were saying, I don't want my child back in school because I don't want to put them at a potential risk. And I know that that comes from a place where, you know, I potentially and I, I like I, I felt it at the time myself. I'll be perfectly honest. Uh, we were in the middle of last year, and I was, you know, they were talking about the schools opening, kind of towards the Easter and then it was towards the summer and then it was right and I remember myself thinking oh god for mine I, I just don't know I just don't know if I want them to go yeah. back just yet you know I'm, I'm worried yeah. I'm genuinely worried about them but I was very conscious that and like yourself grown up in an area of disadvantage you know like I'm I'm in a, a privileged position to be able to say I don't want my children going I can take the time out and sit and read with them if I need to. You know, we could do our little activities, you know, they can put in front of a screen if they need to, you know, that, that you know, we can make it work as, as well as we can. And when things are safe, I'll put them back. But, you know, I suppose, what's your, what's your answer to the very kind of, they're not going back until it's safe and school, you know, schools should be locked down altogether. Yeah, well, it's one it's one of those two things going on. It's it's balancing, I suppose, the right to health and the right to life with the right to access education. Um, and obviously, for children, education is so fundamental to their development. Um, any interference, it just it just it can change the, their future, you know. And that's the big the big issue that we're all trying to grapple with. I think the other bit then is how do we all respond to, you know, you're in the middle of this this kind of global event, you know, a pandemic. Um, we're being fed this new, these news stories uh, of people dying, um, people with long COVID, uh, you know, uh, it's coming closer to you, your neighbour has it, your colleague has it. Like, it, it, it's all coming and you're you're terrified of it. And I, have, I have a child with asthma and certainly I had myself tormented, you know, at the beginning of it, basically, because I was like, oh, my God, you know, is it what what impact is that going to have on us? But I suppose the, the, the key with this is, you know, there it's going to last about, you know, two years, right? It's going to last about two years, probably. That's the last pandemic in 1918 lasted uh, two years. And we will have to live with it as the issue. We, we have to live through it. And children's education is, is, is really fundamental. And I think what the government have done, you know, we weren't happy with the government's response in the first couple of months because children, they closed the schools. Now, you understand why they did it, um, because they thought at that time, 
that children uh, were spreading that could could spread the virus. Uh, it just so happens children aren't the main spreaders of this virus. That it's actually the, it's adults uh, that are mostly spreading it. Young people from the age of fourteen upwards. And so you know, there's I know there's some discussion around this. Was even closing the schools the right thing because there's real concern when children are at home, they're spreading it by through play dates and in the neighborhood and things like that. And at least in schools, it's a controlled environment. Um, but I think the other thing that was really significant, um, and it really convinced me of the, of the, 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 the fact that we can open schools and it can work well is the fact that, you know, they put a huge amount of work into reopening the schools last September. A lot of money went into it. The guidelines they introduced, you know, Hickwa said they were, you know, top class, the world top class. Um, and then the schools were worked so hard to control the virus in their schools and they kept it very low. And we're just lucky that the younger the child, the less likely it is to spread throughout the school. I mean, that's a, that's a you know, that's a, a lucky thing. So, you know, I, I was feeling much more hopeful actually in autumn last year when I saw the, the figures, they kept them low. Uh, and I really felt for the educators because I felt like you've done a fantastic job. You've worked so hard to make this happen. Um, so I think there's a bit of us, I suppose, uh, you know, making sure they have the right resources they need to try and keep their spaces as safe as possible to protect the staff, make sure those with underlying health conditions aren't exposed um, un unnecessarily. And I think all of that, that's all key. But we need to keep the schools open and until the public health advice tells us not to, uh, and they might have good reasons for that, um, I, I think it's fundamental because the longer this goes on, the more damage to children. And I think the thing we have to do is for people who are afraid is have compassion for them. You know, we have to actually be kind to each other and nice to each other. We're actually going through a very difficult uh, period. And look, I've gotten loads of emails and, you know, from people not happy, you know, they're not happy with me. And they're saying, but what about the virus? You know, and I'm saying, look, we're trying to balance the rights here. And, and, and actually, this is the right thing to do. And we know in other countries they did this and they actually got it right. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not upset that they sent me those emails because I know they're just afraid for their families and they're afraid for themselves. And this is the this is the effects of living through a, a global pandemic. So I'd say put whatever resources we need to, in the schools so they can keep them as safe as possible. Um, make sure we prioritise the most vulnerable kids, the ones that are going to be most disproportionately affected by those closures. Um, and, and then the bigger thing is it's down to us. Like the government's position is schools are prioritised for reopening over everything else. Because I often hear... You know, it, why is the school opening and this not opening? I said, well, the government decided the school is more important than the construction site or the pub. That's what's actually happened. Um, and if you don't get open, what will happen is the pub will end up opening before you. So you have to get it. You have to. You have to get it open before them. Um, but I think the the other thing for people to take home as well as um, is that you know. If, if if the numbers are going to such a degree, the public health advice will change. If they think there's a danger for the public, they will they will change their advice. And I think that's the bit like you know I say listen to the public health advice as well. Like they are these people are trying to make the best decisions for all of us, and they're trying to weigh up all the facts. So there's a bit of us trying to rely on that. And the last thing is we we ourselves need to watch our behaviours because if we do the right thing, our schools can open and we keep the numbers down, and our teachers will be safe and our kids would be safe that's the that's the other message i think you know yeah and i think i think this like so many other things at the moment and maybe it's a product of all of that fear and 
you know, hysteria around the fact that we are we're living through something that no one, you know, well, <clears throat> apart from hundreds of years ago, no one's really lived through before. No, you know, we can't ask anybody. It's not one of those things you can ask your mom or your granny what happened that time when and give me a bit of comfort. It's this is actually new. Everybody's feeling their way through it. And I think, again, this in like this and so many other things, what's missing is the nuance of it. You know, it's either they should be open or they should be shut. The yeah. housing, you know, like renters should either pay the rent or not pay the rent. You know, yeah. people should be in jobs or not in jobs. It's all very, you know, that we ha- you have to pick a side. But yeah. like realistically, as you say, you know, there's there's a lot of balancing out there to be done, um, both at a policy level, but also at an individual family level. You know, if if you're in the position where you feel it's safest for you, for your child to stay at home and you can provide them all those things that, that they need in terms of their, you know, good educational and emotional care, maybe that's a decision to delay. But there are other children who are as you say, completely disadvantaged by the closures and who need to get back into schools. I mean, I'd say for for, for families who are afraid to send their kids to school, and there's different categories because there are some families, so there's some children who have underlying health conditions and they're not going to risk it and it makes complete sense. Um, But there's other families, maybe there's a relative has an underlying health condition. Um, And then there's just families generally, as you say, who are concerned about exposing anyone in their family. You know, the best thing there is, to get the family to connect with the principal and to check what measures are you putting in place? Because if they were able to hear the measures and also hear the success stories, because basically how they managed it was, you know, they have children in bubbles. So they keep them, they minimise the amount of, I suppose, exposure of groups of children. And then when someone tests positive, all the bubble and everyone related are all tested. So they're immediately able to isolate these people and get them out of the school. I think what was happening before Christmas was the public health system with the numbers was starting to collapse, actually. They couldn't res- they couldn't do the testing that was necessary and that the schools were starting to feel it and starting to lose faith in, in this in the system. Um and that that had a knock-on effect. People wanted to close. I think so long as the public health system can make sure all those measures are in place and, and reassure the principals and the teachers and the parents. I think we can try and minimise the, the, the impacts of this virus. I mean, the other thing for us is, look, the virus, and I, I try and say this to you know, the people in my family, because I have people who are cocooning in the family who are terrified and you know, maybe I even drove them to because we saw be freaking out. You know, like you can't go outside. You see the numbers. You know, and I think I shouldn't have done that. Should I have done that? But then I, I say some. I'm saying, look, look at the stats. Even if you get it, it doesn't mean you're going to die. There's a small number of people dying. Someone is dying, obviously, but it's a small number. So you know, try to hold on to that fact that there's just certain. It's older people. It's vulnerable people. Um, there's the impact of long COVID. So there, to try and step back from it a bit as well and say this is not the end of the world if it happens to you as well. But but obviously it does mean that yeah you know if 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 you you have to really make decisions where like you know you can't go and visit I can't visit my in-laws, I can't visit my mom, I can't you know all this these like everyone's making these hard choices. 
and my sister is a nurse. Um, she was kicked out of the house, basically, at <laughs> my mum's house because my mum was a carer and she was like, no, you would just expose me and my pa- my people. So she was out, went off to my aunt's house, the aunt moved into, like it was all this, you know, moving around to try and everyone is living through that. We're all, we're all doing that, actually. And I think we're all kind of exhausted as well. Yeah, I think we all had enough of it at this, at this stage. And I know we're nearly at the end of, of a, the first phase of it. There's more of it to come. Um, so, you know, I, I think being kind to each other and, you know, trying to find solutions together and having compassion for people going through this, uh, trying to like, uh, like there was one of the things about last year was this amazing sense of social and national solidarity. It was, you know, definitely one of the high points in the Children's Rights Alliance, the engagement from members and everyone wants to help and come up with solutions around this. This year feels a bit more divisive, right? A bit more divided and divisive. And I'd love us to get back to that place where we're all working together to try and find a solution and um, leave the epidemiology to the epidemiologists. And, you know, so there's, there's, I, I do hope that we can try and retrieve that again because we delivered a lot for the country, you know, last year to get by working together. I hope we get there again. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think... Certainly the first maybe six months or so of the pandemic, there was a real, we're all in this together, just, you know, there was a real community, a sense of community. People were looking out for each other, minding each other. Um, And there really was that sense of, well, if I do this, it's not just for me, it's for you as well. And it's for for that person I don't even know. Um, Whereas you're right, I think after Christmas, things seem the wheels seem to have fallen off um but I will say Tanya you have given me some comfort um because when when I told that my two are are little they're both going back to school on on Monday and uh when I told them they were going back to school I told them yesterday evening the five-year-old said but the disease and like was absolutely horrified at the notion now he's horrified at the notion for other reasons I'd imagine as well um but the the seven-year-old said well why are we going back why are they sending the youngest back and he was genuinely worried. Um, yeah. And I was saying, well, you know, the, the younger you are, what, you know, what we know about it so far is the younger you are, the less likely you are to contract it. So they're, they're keeping the safest classes in first and then they're, they're going to see how it goes and then the next ones will go in. And just trying to pacify that to try and kind of explain it to yeah. their level. But I mean, even at those ages, they are very much aware of what's going yeah. on even if you're not talking about it all day I'm, I'm yeah. you know we're certainly not like um yeah. but you have given me some comfort that I've even gone in the right direction with that one um <laughs> another exciting thing that you did yesterday um was the report card your the launch yeah. of your report card 2021 so is the government doing what it said it would do well, they're only six months in, right? And the report card tracks the the promises that they've made to children. And, you know, there, there's highs and lows in the report card. And as one of the, the, the high points, I think, in the last year was around ending direct provision, actually. There's a really good commitment in the programme for government to end direct provision. And it's something for all of us to organise around and, and, you know, make sure we get that over the line. But one of the things they did was they agreed to make HICWA the inspection body for refugee accommodation. And why that's important, like HICWA at the moment inspects uh, accommodation for uh, children in residential care, people with disabilities, and they inspect our hospitals and our medical facilities. And, you know, they go in, they do unannounced inspections, they write reports and they get published. And they expose if there's 
gaps in care, if there's inconsistencies, if there's ill treatment, and that helps the political system. We get transparency about how people are being treated, but it helps the political system change what needs, you know, what needs to change. And people in direct provision, it's been this exceptional space where the all the different oversight things that should be happening um, and it's taken time to really change all of that uh, like children for example in direct vision were the only group of children that could not make a complaint to the ombudsman for children until 2016 and that was clarified and then they could so the small little group of children you know you know in around 2000 children they were for some reason treated uh, exceptionally uh, so why I think that is really important is you know most people in direct vision will never make a complaint to be honest about their treatment and uh, they're too a lot of people are too vulnerable they have protection claims they want to get the focus on that if a public body and exposing any issues um that's a real game changer because it means that the kind of treatment that we've seen in the past will get exposed by the state and the state will be held accountable for it. so i think that was a, a, a high point Another high point uh, is, funnily enough, I am used to a report card saying, saying the government has gotten an E and an F on housing. <laughs> so that, that has been the case. But they get a C this year on child homelessness because there was a 40% decrease in child homelessness. Really radical um, and something we thought we'd always be with. But those measures I mentioned earlier, the moratorium evictions, the rent control, the fact that there aren't so many Airbnbs in fact, have actually meant that we don't have as many children in homeless accommodation. So we've situations where children are, um, we've worked with, we're, you know, we're, we're really keeping people in their homes is the key. And we think we should have those measures in place until there's plenty of affordable housing stock available. That's what we should do. Those Now we know they work. We've proved it really they work. is incredible. Like yeah. in the space of eight to 12 months, yeah. we have an evidence base for a number of housing related policies that can have yeah. a real impact on homelessness. Yeah, yeah. They work all the things that organisations like yourself and the housing charities have been looking for over the years, they work. There's evidence it all works. Um, and that's actually what we should be doing. And no more pussyfooting around us. Let's let's get that right. Um, the other two, so if we take two areas where we weren't happy about how the government did, one is the area of um, reduced curriculum it's called it's a very you know it's it, 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 nobody knows what it really means but effectively what it means is your child is their education is suspended for a part of the day and we have lots of children who every day they might only spend a couple of hours in school maybe one or two or three hours a day and sometimes that's with the agreement of a parent and sometimes not and it's such a major interference on your right to education because there could be circumstances where you need to be only a few hours a day. Maybe you were sick and you're trying to reintegrate. Maybe you're a refugee child and you've arrived into the country and they're trying to bring you in slowly. Look, there could be lots of reasons, but there are lots of re other reasons why it's happening. And the school is saying they can't cope with the child or with the needs that they have. Uh, there was a study done by Ditna Devine um, in UCD, Professor Ditna Devine, and she found that 24% of her principals had reported children on reduced curriculum we were like what we were like I, I, well, I nearly fell off the chair when she presented those statistics to us because it gave a sense of how widespread this potentially is and and remember you're, you're, it changes your life forever i mean children as young as five we've been contacted in the children's rights lines and our helpline by their parents to tell us they, they want to put my child on reduced hours what does that mean and we know once that happens you're you know 
you, the child, the, the difficulty in trying to for them to reach their full potential. We had two young people speak at the launch, Emily and Quiva, and they are um, they're students with the Life Centre in Cork. And what they told us, I mean, I, I, I found it so distressing because one of them talked about how, you know, she used to be picked up before the break times. So it meant she never got to make friends with anyone. And she felt like there was something wrong with her, that she was being taken out of school and she was being brought back at a certain hours. And she felt so stigmatized around it. And what is really striking, if you look at an organization like the Life Centre, they have children that have come in there, a lot of them have experienced these reduced hours and they've gotten those kids onto third level. So it tells you if you put the right supports in place and you give kids and you work, you, you support their needs and you treat them with dignity and equality, you can get them through the education system. But a lot of schools would tell us that they like they don't have enough psychologists, their teachers haven't been given enough training. They just don't have enough supports to be able to hold on to a child um, in the school day. And then we're just worried that, you know, like there seems to be very particular groups who it's hitting children with disabilities, children with autism, uh, traveller children seem to be really affected by it. Children with emotional uh, challenges and difficulties seem to be affected by it. So that's an area where the government did badly. They got a, they, they got a D minus. It's incredible to me that a child as young as five could be labelled at such an early age and have their education reduced from that time. Like that's that is so significant to their development, their, their overall development. You know, it's not just their educational attainment, the, their emotional yeah. development, their social development. It's, yeah. it's so damaging. Yeah. And, and, the, the, and, and the, the knock on pieces that, you know, if you ask children in all the surveys, what matters most to them? They say they're friends, right? They actually say they're friends and they say often say their teacher is next on, on, on the list. Um, and then if you're doing something like that, if you're marking them out, if you're stopping them from actually integrating with the rest of their pals, you've just cut off a whole area of their life that's so important to them and, and their and their well-being um, and I do really feel for like we do have at the moment um, a lot of children with disabilities sometimes they can't find a school place and there's been a big upsurge in home tuition and you know like home tuition is not the answer because I know those kids are missing out on having a chance to have friendships and relationships and that's what matters to them the most not just getting the teacher and doing education it's actually being part they want to be part of a community of ch with other children and young people they're designed for that that's what they that was what motivates them they don't want to be hanging out with adults all day at home uh and you know the, it, it is i i feel the reduced hours is really a manifestation probably of the, the bigger problems in the education system like what one of the good things that happened was we mainstreamed children with disabilities. Um, and around the same time we did that, the recession hits and we start stripping out all our support services at the same time. So we didn't give schools the tools they need to hold on to children as long as possible and give them the best education. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you talked about kind of that need for supports, that need for support, for supporting children where necessary to, to fulfill their potential. There's a new campaign or kind of a second wave of a campaign going on at the moment. It was launched earlier this month, um, the Supporting Children campaign. And you're involved with that again. Yeah. What kind of, of supports are we talking about there? 
So I suppose that there there are lots of supports, particularly if you take family supports uh, for and, and information supports for families who would be struggling at home uh, because of COVID. So there, there's a contact list of all the different organisations that they can contact if they're struggling. Um, there's a contact list of uh, helplines. And I suppose the other piece they're trying to get people to think about is, you know, contacting to so the Child and Family Agency, like they... They don't just take children away, actually. And most of the time they don't do that, actually. And they don't want to do that, like, because the best thing usually for children is to be with their families, to be quite honest. What they'll want to do is support a parent as much as they can with their child. Um, and that's the big difference, I think, you know, with the UK, for example, where there's huge levels of intervention that does not happen actually here in Ireland at all at, at the same level. But the other piece that's coming through the campaign is is to remind people if they're concerned about a child is to contact TUSLA and the Child and Family Agency. Don't, don't delay on that. Let them know if you think there's a child at risk, um, and they can they can investigate and check in. And and often what they're doing actually is they're connecting them with the local service. So, you know, it could be Bernardo's. Mm. Bernardo's is doing some work with the family, or taking the child off and doing some sessions with the child, or it could be with the ISPCC, or you know that's often what the, res- the response is, and it just makes a huge difference um, to to people's lives. I mean, one of the things that you know, depresses me about the last lockdown uh, is to hear that there were there because the children with special needs didn't have their daycare centres open. Uh, it's that parents for the first time in their lives that actually came to the attention of Tusla. Uh, they themselves either rang and said they couldn't cope or they were referred by Tusla because they were struggling at home. Uh, they couldn't meet their, their children's needs. So I would be hearing from member organisations that are actually working with these parents for the first time, basically. They ended up, because of the lockdown, because schools were closed and the daycare centres were closed, they ended up with Tusla. Uh, so obviously making sure those, those services are open is key, but at least they're getting support. At least they're getting support. Uh, you know, they're at breaking point, but at least they're getting some, some support. And I suppose that's the thing to remember, that people shouldn't be suffering in, in isolation. Absolutely. And finally, and I, I really am so grateful for, for your time, Tanya, in the context of well-being, both, I suppose, in the, the short term, but also kind of longer term as well, what would be your priorities? If you were to name three to five priorities, what would be your main priorities to ensure that you know children's well-being is protected? I think getting uh, enough psychologists throughout the education system and youth services, I think that's absolutely key. Um, obviously, getting the schools open, but but in line with public health device, but in the events that the public health device is saying that we can't keep the whole education system open, making sure those children that are disproportionately affected, disadvantaged children, children with special needs, disabilities, making sure schools are kept open for them and there's some alternative, actually really coming up with solutions to make that happen. You know, it shouldn't be the case the UK can do it be led by Boris Johnson and we can't do it and we're far better leaders in this country you know um I'm sure he had nothing to do with it anyway but um you know that I think that would be really key it's something that we should be we should be committing to as well um really investing in youth services 
because youth services have a huge role to play when young people are really struggling in different in different in, in different uh, ways. Um, and I think really making the investments, uh, they really they like they really sh- they really showed how they in the last lockdown the difference that they made to children's lives. I mean, it was it was evaluation that really came through, giving them the resources to go into communities and work with children and young people, particularly where there are no youth services. As well, I think it is really key. I mean, the other thing I'd, I'd love to see, I'd love to see a big reform of the Leaving Cert, you know, like like the like the stress coming through the youth organizations contact me to say all oh, their young people were so stressed over this exam. Um, and it just really struck me like, why can't we? We know it's wrong. It's not worth I mean, that those kids should not have been stressed over the exam, but they were they're, because their whole life unfortunately depended on it and they can't see even if it doesn't work out for you, there's other chat, you know, there's other routes. You don't see that when you're 17, you just don't see it because this is the only thing that matters. I think, I think the big lesson is change it, get, get rid of it now and, and, and really make the difference. But the other thing I'd love to see as well is, I think it's for us to accept that, you know, for making big decisions about children and young people, they should be central to those decisions. Like they have the answers. Whenever you ask, right, whenever you bring young people together. I mean, I saw it when um, there was a, a big dialogue around Brexit, like, and sort of came up with stuff I would never have come up with. <laughs> like, it was just brilliant. I was like, oh, I was getting loads of stuff from them. <laughs> they have so many solutions for the future. And they, they, they're great at naming all, all the challenges that they're living with. Um, I think we need to do more of that. And does anything during COVID, particularly within the education system, decision-making that came through, I think we need to be making sure, look, children are at the table and we listen to what they have to say and we need to be designing solutions uh, that really meet their needs. Absolutely. Um, that's all the questions I have for you and I'm sure I'm sure you're wall falling with the amount of them. Is there anything, is there any key message that you'd like to get out there, Tanya? Well, look, um, I, I'd love people to think big about the future, I think, for, for children and young people. We're in a low place, uh, but I think people, if we can start looking at what the solutions are and start organising together around those solutions, because the more of us that say the same thing and the right thing together, the more likely the politicians are, are going to latch onto it. So, look, I'd be really interested in people who want to get involved with the Children's Rights Alliance. If you want to become a member, um, please do contact us. You can go to our website, um, www.childrensrights.ie uh, and, and, and become a member organisation. Uh, and I, I really like to get people thinking about the next national children's strategy. What should that look like for children? What are the golden ticket items in that strategy? And think about how to get children and young people involved in it as well. I think they'd be the, the core messages I'd have for everyone. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. As always, if you have any suggestions or comments on our podcast or what you'd like to see into the future, please do contact us on secretary at socialjustice.ie. Until next time, stay safe.